Hello, welcome and welcome back. Joining me for one of my favorite dialogues so far is Anderson Todd, a depth psychologist, alchemist and cognitive scientist. This was a three and a half hour journey into the dynamics of intra and interpsychic evolution, a highly resonant theme to the project. I've split the conversation into two parts. Here we begin by offering some grounding in the Jungian notion of archetypes as shared evolving psychic structures before delving into a dialogue that seeks to shed new light on the transitionary nature of our collective moment. In part two, we develop the dialogue by integrating elements of alchemical theory, exploring the figure of Mercurius, and much more. You can access an uncut version of the full dialogue, including part two, by becoming a patron. Okay, you can stay up to date with the community building project by signing up to the mailing list at voicecraft.io, and there you can also find links to participate in Voicecraft gatherings. And on that, the voicecraftcollective.com network is currently in beta. We'll be launching that as a private network for collaborative research, dialogical transformation, and experiments in distributed cognition and community building. Patrons will receive lifetime access to this network. On this, the mailing list is where you'll be sure to receive updates and invitations. The gears are clicking and we're just about ready to go. Thank you for being here and let's continue to breathe through this time together. The fracturing tension is palpable, the way through is we. Let's go. Anderson, it's really lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me. We stand in what feels like a clearing at the moment. I've heard it described also as an eye of the storm, a sort of place we're in where identity is less stable than previous. And there's a sense that it would be quite a good thing if we managed to draw together what knowledge and understanding we do collectively possess into something that was integrous and available for participation in for as many people as possible. And there's a sort of an imagistic element to all of this for me. A friend of mine mentioned in an audio message that he was interested in what doesn't an arc look like in this time, the development of an arc, given the sort of swirling maelstrom of possibility around us. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. And I hope that with your knowledge of subjects that are deeply close to my heart and interests, we might present some things that are valuable, um, educational, but also take on some questions that uh, might emerge between us. I certainly am resonating with a few relate to the nature of the self and the ego and transformation and how we can come to know ourselves and each other and the world in a way that is healthy, you know? How can we enter into relationships that don't inappropriately end our lives, to put it in some strange way? So, yes, I am very interested to have this conversation and I think it would be nice to you know, give you the opportunity to introduce yourself just briefly, some of what your deepest abiding passions are, I suppose, as they might apply to this exploration we're going on. Okay, sure. So first off, thank you for having me. I'm actually super enthused. I've been quite looking forward to it as well. So I appreciate it a great deal. So I'm a, a university lecturer at the University in Toronto, where I have 
taught in cognitive science. I taught oh, the first half of the big sort of cognitive science intro course, which is normally was developed and run by John Vervecki, who I understand was on your, your show, was uh, a, a close friend of mine. And I taught the upper year course in consciousness, uh, cognitive science of consciousness. And then I also teach the sort of depth psychology suite of courses at U of T. So these are courses about Jung and some of the post-Jungians and the hypotheses of the unconscious. And thus, by extension, in, in that course, I also get to deal with, you know, a whole suite of things that are near and dear to my heart. So lucid dreaming, psychedelics, magic, ritual, altered states, you name it. So yeah, that's been sort of a wonderful opportunity to, to teach material that frankly, doesn't often get a lot of attention in my experience at the university, and I think can be treated with, you know, with an, with an academic eye that maintains openness, but nevertheless, you know, subjects things to the kind of standards that we expect in sort of, you know, formal knowledge creation, you know, whatever that means. And then in addition to that, I'm a, I'm a private practice psychotherapist, so I maintain an in-person private practice, and I also do uh, online clients, so I have sort of an international client base. And then in addition to that, I have unexpectedly been thrust into the world of, of YouTube, etc. So the need to convert some of my lectures for online consumption has suddenly thrown me into this, this whole scene, which has been um, amazing. It's a swirling, whirling tornado like Wizard of Oz. So I'm sort of getting up to speed on video production and the potentials of those, um, of those sort of modes of expression. And it's, it's all very exciting. But yeah, in the main, I suppose my you know, whatever. My, my bio tag for these purposes is university lecturer and private practice psychotherapist and with depth psychology sprinkled all over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. You know, I hear throughout all of that, if I was to just put it into a word and we were like 400 years ago, it probably would just be wizard fundamentally. That is the goal. Um, yeah. yeah, actually, it's funny. There's a story that I sometimes tell in my class. I used to run a conference at U of T, which was a, a kind of a collaboration between the Jungian society and the, the Buddhist psychology group. And it was pretty good. We had at the time, John Vervecki spoke for us quite often. Jordan Peterson was a, a very frequent speaker and sort of lots of our local rock stars in Toronto, as it were. And uh, this being a number of years ago, but at one point we were driving one of our Buddhist speakers back to the airport. And I was in a car, of course, full of Buddhists. And I am, I am not Buddhist, although I you know, respect and borrow from Buddhism. But there was sort of a big roundtable discussion that broke out, round, round car discussion when we were driving to the airport about, you know, the desire to become a saint. And, you know, there was this kind of like enlightenment emphasis that, that went around the car. People were like, yeah, you know, when I got into Buddhism or I got into meditation, I was really driven with this desire to attain a kind of like sanctity of the spirit and, and sainthood and Buddhahood and, right, the, the Bodhisattva vow. And it got around to me and I said, well, I think that's a good goal. Don't get me wrong. But I have to admit that is not, and has, it, that's never been my guiding ethos, you know? And they were like, what do you mean? I said, I always would rather have been a wizard than a saint. And they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. They can both be bearers of wisdom, but they are subtly different figures with sort of different levels of, of cultural impact. So being called, being called a wizard is more or less, I think, the highest compliment I could get. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, the Jungian frame gives a world of uh, archetypes, obviously, that we have seen permeate throughout culture and popular culture in various ways and continue to serve as important 
maps for development for so many people, yet the sort of integration between a Jungian frame and what are taken to be the hallowed halls of knowledge in many of our universities today is kind of a fraught one, right? Mm -hmm. And well, I'm hoping that in this conversation, we might lay down a bit of a base track, first of all, an introduction that we can grapple onto for the rest of our discussion in, mm -hmm. in pursuing some questions. So when people encounter the work of Jung, at least in my experience, the most nebulous initial concept, which is more than a concept in some important sense, to get one's head and body and heart sort of in and around is this notion of the archetypes. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's by any means the most nebulous, but it is a sort of, it's a, Early it's a, stumbling it's a big block. one. Yeah. yeah. So how can we relate to this notion of archetype? What's a good sort of introduction point? Handle introduction point. Sure. So, you know, archetypes within Jung are in a sense, the sort of organizing structures of the psyche. Okay, so if you think about, you know, Freud's model of the psyche, which everybody knows, we have the superego and the ego and the id. And in many ways, right, this is a kind of hydraulic structure where the, the superego, right, your inner nag is operating on one side and the id is attempting to drag you from the other side. And you're caught in this kind of tug of war between them where the ego is, is dragged back and forth. It's kind of hydraulic system with, with a few parts and it elaborates a bit over time. Jung's model, on the other hand, is very sort of multipolar, or, you know, you could think of it as being a bit polytheistic. So, you know, there are sort of multiple centers within the psyche that are operating. And importantly, and this was part of where his big breakup from Freud happened, you know, it's not all just sort of entrained to and dominated by the erotic drive. So it's not just all about sex, but rather there are a bunch of sort of centers within the psyche that are structures that organize the way that people's minds work and above and beyond their sort of particular and individual, you know, constitution of their psyche, they also organize the collective unconscious, which is also a huge stumbling block for people. So part of the problem in thinking about these things is, I mean, one of the problems that I often speak on is that Jung is, you know, writing his work and he was a quite prolific author, but he's writing his work and his theory over the span of, you know, 50 years. So from sort of the teens through to his death in the early 60s, you know, he has this volume of writings and necessarily his ideas about these things shift over that period, right? He tends to favor a kind of completeness over consistency. And so, you know, he, he gets these shifts. And so depending on where you come in to the timeline on the idea of archetype, you're going to get a very different sort of explanation or version of the archetype. Now, he is quite insistent that none of these descriptions, lists, or maps are sort of the thing in itself, right? That's important. Mm -hmm. So the map isn't the territory. We can talk about this stuff, but at the end of the day, it's a set of handles that we're using to, to understand something that in some fundamental sense is going to exceed whatever our description of model are. So you can't just come up with this neat list of archetypes, right? Shadow, ego, persona, right? That stuff is handy, but ultimately speaking, it's something of a shorthand for what's really going on. But what is the archetype, if I say an organizing principle? So we're used to thinking about archetypes, I think, when we encounter them casually in pop culture as being sort of the, the core set of iconic figures that you might see in a myth 
or in a fairy tale. So, you know, the king, the dragon, the warrior, right? You know, the, the damsel in distress. To some extent, that's a way to think about them when we're thinking about the collective unconscious. But I think an easier way to, to get at these is just to consider the kinds of shared psychic structures that all of us invariably have. So to give you an example, necessarily, because of biology, everybody alive on Earth has a mother, right? Automatically, it's a given. <laughs> they may not know their mother, but the point is they are going to have a relationship with the mother. They will have gestated inside of somebody. As such, right, and, and mammals being what they are, and humans in particular, we have a really long developmental period. We have this bonding thing. And so there is a natural kind of relationship that, that is formed with a mother or a caretaker. It can be a substitute caretaker. But the point is, right, in sort of most evolved standard conditions, there's going to be this bonding event that occurs between a child and a mother that is going to be pivotal to the, the child's sort of success and survival. And so... Evolution, in a sense, if you want to think about this naturalistically, preloads the sort of infant version a little bit in order to facilitate this. An example that I like to use here is geese. So geese, when they hatch out of an egg, go through a phase called, a short phase, called imprinting. So what happens is, you know, the egg cracks open and the little gosling fixes its eyes on whatever is nearby and it imprints on it as the mother. Now, 99% of the time, of course, that's going to be an adult goose that is looking after the eggs. And so the gosling imprints on the goose, and then it behaves towards the goose in the ways that are adaptive for it. So if the goose walks someplace, the goslings will all toddle along after it in a little line. And these are the behaviors that we're used to seeing in nature. But if you intervene experimentally, which I wouldn't want to do because it sounds cruel, but it, it was done before we invented ethics in 1995. You can get a gosling to imprint on a surprisingly wide range of persons and objects. You can get them to imprint on you, the experimenter. You can get them to imprint on a stuffed animal. You can get them to imprint on a ping pong ball if you present it in the right way in the right time at the window. And if you do that, you know, take a ping pong ball, you imprint the goslings, and then you roll that ping pong ball along the table, the goslings will all toddle after it right? So they have a set of behaviors towards the world, right? Which is sort of in some sense kind of pre-built in to them. And they have a kind of time sensitive, you know, hole in their psyche, which is ready to receive material and then behave towards that material in a certain way. If you want to think about this in Jungian terms, there's sort of three phases to an archetype. So the archetype stands outside your knowledge completely, right? It's, it's the Kantian thing in itself. So you can't ever get at the archetype. It's sort of necessarily invisible to you. You can only sense it by its effects. So what you get is some layers. You get the archetype, which you have to sort of infer the existence of, whatever. You get the archetypal image, which is typically the cultural material, which, which builds up in general around this whole. And then you have people's particular material, which we would call their complex. So everybody has complexes, right? We talk about somebody having an Oedipus complex or a superiority complex, or right? And complex is the material that, that people have specifically sort of in that archetypal gap. So you can think about it, and it's like most goslings are going to have a complex, which is their mother, their specific mother. And 
you know, most animals tend to have variations in their personality. So the specifics of what they end up with in their complex is going to be dependent on who they imprint on, right? Who the mother is. And you know, I suppose if they have a really irritable goose mother, then they're going to have specific ideas about what, how geese behave. And if they end up with a really friendly goose mother, I don't know what the ranges of personality are in geese, but you know, uh, if they end up with a real mother goose, then they're going to end up with, right? But if they end up imprinting on a ping pong ball, then the material that they have is going to be problematic for them, probably in some way or another, right? It's going to cause them issues because the information that they're then taking through this sort of this primed system ready to receive information about the world is going to be sort of mucked up with a slightly inappropriate set of contents or a problematic set of contents. Humans have this stuff too. So we can think about Yes, we have sort of, you know, slots where mother and father go or, you know, primary caregivers. We have the slots where our early romantic interests start to slot in, right? So it's not uncommon to talk to people clinically and personally where they will tell you that, you know, their romantic interests have heavily patterned after somebody they had a crush on when they were 11. And siblings will tend to imprint this material. And then we also develop both sort of culturally relevant, but also family culture and personally relevant images around all of the other things that are, you know, human universals. Every human culture has a concept of war, right? A concept of war. And so the warrior is sort of a universal type among humans. There are no human groups on earth that don't have some idea of, you know, the, the wise woman or the wise man, right? Somebody who has sort of special knowledge in some sense. Humans universally have certain kinds of, you know, sort of spiritual ideas, right? So it's a cultural universal, culture, so far as I know, it's a cultural universal, that up is associated with good and to down is associated with bad. And you find that everywhere. And you can sort of think about this and think there are all sorts of reasons why those associations in play and they're genetic and they're functional and some of them are an outgrowth of culture. But the point is that these patterns in our thinking are sort of universal and to some extent programmed in. You can also look at, for instance, cases where human infants have responses to certain kinds of patterns for things that they have not actually encountered. There has been a bunch of experimental work that shows that infants will show a fear response to the patterns of a spider or a snake, even if they have never encountered a spider or a snake. So on one level, you know, if provided that sort of finding holds up, you can say, well, that makes sense. Evolution probably predisposed babies not to reach for spiders, right? When we were, you know, coming up in, during the evolutionary sort of arc. But above and beyond that, what it means is that you can imagine how that filters down. What it means then in turn is that that's going to pick up all this additional cultural material. If you have something that is a fearful concept and, and a human universal, you're going to get all kinds of additional symbolism and stuff building up from it. So that's kind of the, that's the gist of it. There are some other archetypes within the system, but I, I suppose the shorthand way to think about it is this. And this is sort of, I think, the central insight of most of the psychodynamic systems from Freud onwards. You're not one thing. You're a dynamic system of interrelating parts. And those parts are not, I mean, I'm sort of contra Freud. Those parts are not mechanical subsystems. They're not hydraulic you are a living thing made of living things, right? Which should sort of be obvious, right? We're made of living cells and living tissues. We have bacteria in us. We've got skin mites on us, right? But the same thing applies to, if you want to get purely naturalistic, our, our brain, 
Our brain is a living thing made out of individual living things which exist in a competitive structure for resources. And the fact is that, you know, yes, we have this consciousness that we associate with sort of our whole body and whole brain that we call Anderson or Tim, but then the individual subsystems don't suddenly stop having any measure of agency, consciousness, or any of the other things just because they're slightly smaller. In fact, what you have instead is a whole bunch of these systems interacting together in a communal fashion to produce the psychic thing that you typically apply the high label to that is you. So you have a bunch of these parts in your psyche uh, and they sort of all answer to the same name and live at the same address, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all communicating with each other. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they all see things the same way or have the same goals. Beautiful. Does that make sense? Yeah, most certainly. Thank you very much for laying that down. So let's see how to take this on then. Uh, you mentioned if we want to get really naturalistic about this or to speak from a frame of naturalism. And I am very much open to the frame of naturalism, often distinguished, of course, from supernaturalism. So I, I resonate with a kind of metaphysical naturalism in that I am not interested in kind of some black box that I'm secretly hiding from how we coherently seek to describe and relate to our world um, mm -hmm. as the thing to reach for to then give that secret source of explanation or reason for the whole thing. Yet that term I've seen often described in ways that I actually think can be at least at face value unhelpful for actually really feeling into and integrating some of the ways of thinking that the Jungian frame and oh. concordant alchemical frames might uh, suggest we take seriously. For instance, it can often be argued that the mind plays a uh, reduced role in the naturalist framework. You know, some people oh. sometimes define away the mind, the existence of mind somehow in ontology before we even begin the kind of conversation. And it's in the middle of this being caught between a rock and a hard place of kind of realism and idealism from a philosophy of mind perspective that I think people have been perhaps without the, the toolkit to really look to integrate some of the Jungian stuff with mm. a frame that's both palatable to the West, but that also speaks in a way that does a kind of feeling tone justice to the mm -hmm. dynamics and qualitative experience of our lives, of the richness of the psyche and of the mystery of meaning. And, and I hope mm -hmm. we can turn into these kind of domains. Now, I'm not seeking to sort of quibble about definitions of these terms like naturalism and what have you. I, I, sure, I really sure. am open to these things. But the patterns, hey, the patterns are where it's at. And what strikes me is that just as there are kind of the, a metaphor that, that is helpful is that just as there are organs of the body, there are organs then of, of the psyche. There, are, there is kind of like a, an inner organization of the psyche, latent patterns in potential that realize themselves in accordance with what is presented in the world. So this imprinting and that also function together if they uh, do so well in a kind of developmental direction uh -huh. that we can become more of who we are, that we can realize ourselves by having or realizing how this inner 
what might begin as an, an inner potential or cacophony, perhaps if we're not doing so well, how this can be brought into a kind of inner harmony, how this community can realize itself in a kind of self-making relationship. And then of course, well, if there is a self, like an inner harmony within me, and I realize myself in part through imprinting on things in the world and coming into relation with others, then how do these patterns then flow and work at a collective level? And then perhaps we get to a little bit of a grasp on what the collective unconscious looks like. But that's a really beautiful sort of baseline you've laid down there. Can I, on the point of naturalism, I actually should probably frame that because it's, I'm so used to talking to people who are all already operating sort of within this framework, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard not to sometimes get a bit insular in the university environment. But yeah, so the question of naturalism. When most people are thinking of naturalism, just for reference, I, I think that people still have a kind of a mechanistic hangover, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a, like, there's like a post-Newtonian drag, right? sort of post-Newtonian with a touch of the bleakest form of Darwin that people have gotten, have cottoned onto, right? And we can come back around to this. I actually think that that particular exceedingly bleak and mechanistic view still has utility, provided that you're not using it by itself. Mm-hmm. So the general position that I have is I think that, and, and this applies to sort of all you know, knowledge creation and I try to apply it everywhere, but I identify as a militant agnostic and I have a particular kind of extreme emphasis on epistemological humility. So I believe that certainty is that both the search for certainty and the sense of certainty are more often than not the problem rather than the solution that people think they are. And also I have a very strong, maybe even radical kind of approach to maintaining flexibility in one's models. So I don't think that looking for the certain answer and striving towards perfect consistency is necessarily the best way to approach knowledge, especially in these domains. And so I take my note from Gödel, Tarski properly, but, and I favor completeness over consistency. And the idea is you can do that provided that you aren't hung up on making everything locked together in a totally airtight way all the time provided that you maintain a state of play where you can adopt a perspective and play with it and see how it works and adopt another perspective and play with it and shift around. You can shape shift, essentially speaking. If you can shape shift, you can actually do quite a bit. So that's yes. the first thing. The reason I bring up that, that sort of the naturalistic point is I do believe in, in the utility of naturalism. I think that, you know, finding sort of formal scientific things is a really powerful tool to get at knowledge, albeit not the only one. But I think that 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 Newtonian hangover, I mean, okay, I remember being at the pub. This was maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago. And I was waiting for somebody and I was having two or three pints. And two or three pints in, I'm listening to the conversation behind me. And I'm listening to a a very well-meaning but extremely earnest young man uh, sort of hold forth about how science was draining all the mystery and magic from the world, right? It was this, this is like the disenchantment hypothesis. And I'm listening to this and I'm listening to this and he went, but I'm thinking, wow, you're wrong, really wrong in my opinion, right? Or in my mm-hmm. experience. And so finally I turned around and I said, you know, like, what are you talking about? Like science does not make the world a pinned down, well-established, solid place. It makes the world radically more bizarre and mysterious. Everything science touches gets weirder and, and in my experience, more wonderful, right? And so 
And if you get into the habit of talking to people in scientific fields, the, the question I always like to go for straight away is like, what in the field is unsolved and doesn't make sense? Where are the deep mysteries? And they're always there. In every field, people will say, we have no idea how anything works, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. To me, I mean, you know, that's wonderful, right? It's like so much open ground for exploration. But there is to this idea of a certain amount of sort of mechanism in science that people get hung up on. That's, I think, where the most current generation of cognitive science really excels as a kind of bridging language to start to bring some of this more esoteric material back into dialogue so that it's not sort of off in a, off in a, a weird you know, corner by itself, right, being shunned mm -hmm. by the rest of the academy. So for instance, you said, for instance, we can think about the archetypes as being like organs, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. But the trick is, if it's naturalistic, and if you think that this stuff is mostly occurring within the brain, then the brain is this amazing little machine that it turns out is a machine made of other machines that can turn itself into new machines. And so it's not just a set of organs, it's a set of evolving organs with relationships to each other that are shifting around. So like I sometimes say to my students, people still have this idea that the brain is like, you know, a mass of wires and circuits. And if you cut into it, it will spark. And it's much more like a bucket of worms. The neurons are squirming around in there and replicating and connecting. And like, it's a much more organic kind of thing. And as cognitive science has incorporated things like dynamical systems theory and so on and so forth, and adopted these ideas of neuroplasticity, we start to get into a much more living and far more philosophically kind of expansive and deeply mysterious ground through which we can start to explore this stuff, but without sort of breaking the rules, if that makes sense. Anyway, yes. yeah. No, absolutely. And I, you know, I resonate with that very strongly. And I'm glad we, we make this, we, I'm glad we make this link. So... So Please. can I ask you a question? Because I'm, yeah. I'm curious. So how did you come by, like where, where does your interest in Young and depth psych and alchemy, where does all that emerge from? Ooh, um, often in those questions, I go quite developmental, but let's, well, uh, yeah. I've been doing that a bit recently. That's fine. Every, everything's developmental. Consciousness yeah. is inherently <laughs> developmental, so it's okay. Yes. So oh, the, you know, a, a long story, very short was the, breakup of the world parents let's say a divorce my parents divorce and moving from mm -hmm. england to australia very much a kind of garden of eden type environment where i was afforded such wonderful educational opportunities until i was about sort of you know 10 and a half 11 and mm -hmm. the last few years in england were pretty pretty rough years yeah and moving to australia and having a very opposite experience in terms of schooling so, and by the time high school sort of ended, I didn't attend a bunch of my final exams and was altogether completely disillusioned by life fundamentally. Then I hear you. Absence, I'm, yeah. I'm a high school dropout, so I totally hear you. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. So disillusioned with teacherly authority fundamentally, but having this kind of sort of a, a deep embodied sense of there being other possibilities and a deep recess of love there that was Ooh. that was broken and hurt but was a sort of a driving force which which is important because we're going to skip a bunch of years now and we're going to skip into a particularly powerful psychedelic experience mm -hmm. you know i'd already cultivated an interest in philosophy and fantasy and you know what have you and i traveled a bit and had been practicing meditation had other psychedelic experiences mm -hmm. but this particular one was a real 
climactic, I wouldn't say break, but one mode of response would be break to it. Mm-hmm. And the, the experience was one that I've spent many years sort of writing about privately and seeking to sort of mine the gold from. Mm-hmm. And I feel it's very much relevant because I was sort of taken into a, what feels like a, a kind of timeless domain where mm-hmm. the same kind of opportunity or spiral or circle or recursion was presented to me. And so, you know, it was like a hyper meditation on the fundamental modes of orientation available in consciousness in response Mm -hmm. to what was overwhelming appearance of absolute chaos, Um, Mm -hmm. just a, a maelstrom of dissolution that a deep part of me was seeking to hold off and resist and reject. Mm-hmm. And one feels very quickly as one orients in relation to this dynamic, whether accepting it or rejecting it or what the effect of that kind of thing is. Sure. There can be a relief and there can be, you know, a, a deep kind of existential pain. Sure. So, so skipping ahead from that a little bit, I had, become interested in Jung through interests in meaning fundamentally, you know, as a response to a sort of depression and many elements of the meaning crisis, mm-hmm. trying to find people to talk to, to learn from. It's like, there's something else that's being missed here by a particularly kind of reductive approach to, to either doing philosophy or relating to the world, that there's something about the orientation that the quality of my experience itself, like the, mm-hmm the the beauty in expression itself being on the pulse of that that there's an inherentness to the meaning of being that i was not wanting to forestall i I didn't want to cut that away from how like an integration in with an understanding of reality itself so you might think like how fundamental are we are our experiences to the universe like how much do we matter really because some views are like oh we're all kind of just contingent on sort of like a base layer. If we think in mechanistically, it's like, well, one thing kind of, you know, all of a sudden something pops up at another level and, you know, the consciousness we experience is just kind of contingent on stuff that's wholly maybe non-conscious. This was the language I used at the time. And this was kind of deeply dissatisfying because it's kind of like, oh, well, so there's a whole bunch of determined kind of patterns or they're indeterminate or whatever, but what's happening up here is kind of, it is one of whatever, right? Like sure. it's a bunch, it's a bunch of eddies that some uh, hydrogen atoms are having on their way to heat death. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Sure. And, and I was not too pleased with this as I think many people are. So so I, I'm not pleased with, but you know, you can take different, different views on things. And this was, you know, we're still at a kind of historical point in time where I was searching for more fuller perspectives. And, and I remain deeply, deeply interested in, in how it is we can, in fact, realize ourselves, become who we are, and realize what is ours to do in relationship with each other in such a way that involves us deeply in the emergence, in the creation, in the co-creation of reality, of being. Now, mm-hmm. how we want to technically make sense of that is a beautiful inquiry that, that we can well have. But why am I interested in this stuff? Because, goddamn, That seems uh, like a pretty good reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I should stop there. That's enough, eh? <laughs> yeah, wanting, wanting to escape existential entropy in favor of co-creating the universe seems like a pretty good reason. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're going to do something go. with your time, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I there are a bunch of touch points for that. My parents are likewise divorced, mm -hmm. although in, in a very a an atypically amicable fashion, I'll say, mm. which has its own drawbacks because it gave me unusual ideas about how amicable how amicable breakups are yeah. and should be. But but likewise, you know, is it? Am I allowed to ask what what psychedelic in question was the experience that you had? This was psilocybin. It's about five and a half Psyloc grams of oh, the, Cubensis. The, the heroic heroic dose. So you shot yourself out of a cannon. Right. I did. Mm. I did indeed. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting on that on that front alone, just not even getting to the, the depth psych thing. It's, as I've said it, I've spoken on psychedelics at quite a few conferences and talks and things. And, you know, when I was sort of first interested in doing stuff around this at the university, I got told, no, 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 no. Like it'll, you'll destroy your career. Right. And I grew up reading, you know, Timothy Leary and these people and, you know, scientific American, I was all starry eyed reading accounts of Albert Hoffman and stuff. And everyone was like, you can't touch this. And then, you know, there was a short period of time. And suddenly I started to find the, you know, the psychedelic renaissance picking up steam. And as I said, maybe first about five years ago, the thing that's most jarring about it is it's wonderful to see so much good new work being done, right? Mm -hmm. But it's weird for me because I'm not used to being on the winning side of a cultural argument. <laughs> Range to now have positions that were considered quite cranky 10 or 15 years ago. But, you know, it seems like there's a lot more cultural receptivity. And there always was, right? At the fringe and the underground and the progressive edge. People always recognized that psychedelic experiences could be these pivotal breakthrough moments that really altered your sense of the world and yourself and what the potentials of those things could be. Like, that's why, that's why kids continued to drop mushrooms from time out of mind. Like, mm. yeah, they're kind of fun at a party, but that's not really what's happening most of the time because equally they're sometimes not that fun at a party. Mm. Uh, and instead you, you know, whatever, have to make confrontation with universe devouring Kali or something. Yeah. And like, so why have those remained current? And I think, you know, you really put your finger on it. It's, it's about opening up this access. Jung himself was anti-psychedelic, yeah. which is actually one of the points where he and I diverge. I think that that's a remarkably culturally blinkered kind of view, given everything we know about the anthropological role of these things. But I can understand why he, he was wary of them, right? Because coming up yeah. in, the, in the 50s through to the early 60s, you know, this is the period right before Tim Leary becomes completely unhinged. And God bless Leary, he was very handsome and he did a lot of good promotion. But ultimately speaking, he's the one that got Nixon to clamp down on everything and mm. really gave the kind of an out of control vibe. Yeah, so the experience that you detail, I mean, it does, it sounds really familiar to me. Likewise, right? There's a, a kind of disenchantment. And I was a high school dropout for a reason. Like, I mm -hmm. wanted nothing to do with official structures for a long time. It took me a long time to come back around to the idea that there was something to be done there and that actually the system was shockingly more receptive to my weird ideas than I thought it would be and gave me more degrees of freedom than I expected. So I have to say actually the university has been quite kind to me, not that I have no beefs with them. Of course I do. And I think that there are things that they do that are silly and need to be overhauled. But, but on the main point that you're getting at, I think that actually speaks to what I think is maybe kind of one of the central pillars in Jungian work in trying to do the work. So people talk a lot about like the three stages of Jungian work loosely construed. So you get like the shadow stage, 
And so that's like you're grappling with your shadow material, right? Mm -hmm. And then you get the slightly more difficult stage where you're um, encountering your your anima or animus. So you're you're basically dealing with issues of relationship, right? With other people and specifically sexual and romantic relationship, but to some extent parental relationship. And then there's this nebulous masterwork at the top, which is the relationship between your ego, your regular conscious self, and this capital S self. And this causes a lot of thorny confusion for people. And I'm not sure that, you know, we're not going to be able to encapsulate it, but it's a very mystical space. And that throws off relatively conventional psychology people are used to, right? Because it's like, what are we dealing with here? This sounds like schizophrenic psychosis. And it throws off people who have a more naturalistic view because the idea of essences, that we have a fundamental self, smells a little bit like the eternal soul. And so people get weirded out by that. But I once said to a a Freudian, I had a Freudian professor in my undergrad who has since become a a friend. And I went into his office hours one time. He was a Buddhist and, and a clinical psychologist, but also was training as a Freudian. And like old school Freudian, lying on the couch four days a week, kind of Freudian. And so I went into his office and I said, I gotta ask, like, why Freud? Like, why Freud? Like, I was just so puzzled. Why Freud? And I didn't know him that well then. He was very deft and he turned around and he said, well, why Jung? Because he knew I was a Jungian and I was sort of thrown by that. And the answer that I came up with on the spot remains, I think, in some ways, you know, it was one of those answers that came through me, in a sense. And I said, more than of the sort of original psychodynamic theorists, Jung understands the realities of the soul. And when I say that, sometimes it throws people off because they think I mean something woo-woo. And I'm not ruling that out because, you know, Lord knows, we flipped our scientific models into irrelevancy every 50 years for the past 500. So let's not rule anything out yet, folks. If you think we have our model of reality nailed down, you're sorely wrong. And, you know, there are all kinds of issues. The very first piece of work I ever did with John Verveke work with was we co-authored a paper on our, our theory of consciousness. And like, you know, there's a reason that the theory of consciousness proposed by, or the issues with theories of consciousness proposed by Chalmers are called the hard problem. It's like the hard problem, you know? So there are some big gaps. But when I say that Jung understands the reality of the soul, what I mean is that he's a very careful and nuanced observer of the phenomenology of of being across sort of multiple dimensions of consciousness. So he's not just concerned with regular everyday consciousness, but he's concerned with all these subtle, strange events that happen at the edge of our usual consciousness or outside our usual consciousness, but that gesture at some kind of deeper and larger reality within the mind, right? And, you know, when you're looking at the three levels and you're looking at sort of shadow work and then relationship work and then self, it's like, well, what are we talking about? And the grand scheme of that whole thing, I think, is best summarized by just saying that, you know, the real goal of Jungian work is to gradually get the ego to understand that it's not the center of the show. It's just the center of, it's just where consciousness is. That's it, right? So the ego can be kind of a little narcissistic tyrant. It makes the assumption that it's sort of running everything because that's where you can see. It's like the old joke, right? The drunk loses his keys on the way home from the bar. 
And then he goes back and he's searching for them underneath the street lamp. And somebody says, is this where you lost them? And he's like, no, but this is where the light is good. That's the way that we tend to approach the ego. We do all of our work there because the light is good. We can see, we can see what's happening. But this leads us in all kinds of bizarre existential errors because by thinking that we, the ego, right, are the center of the show and everything else is orbiting around us, right? We can't understand why things won't conform to our will. We get thrown when, you know, sort of alien presences seem to intrude on us or we behave in ways that are contrary to our own self-image. And the idea is that gradually loosening up your ego, not destroying it in sort of the traditional sense in which, you know, you, you have to obliterate the ego in, you know, some systems. It's not that. It's just about putting the ego into proper relation so that you understand that you're not the boss of everything, right? Mm. And that that doesn't lessen or negate the very special role that you as the witnessing consciousness and place of integration have, but that... Ultimately speaking, you're not the center of gravity in the system. There is something out in the psyche and possibly in the world, if you want to get metaphysical about it, that is orchestrating this broader movement and dynamic, right? And, you know, when we get closer to that center, we tend to perceive things as being more richly meaningful and more organized. We get this kind of big picture gestalt integrative view. And when that really starts to spike, we get sort of like suffused with mystical levels of integration and symbolism because that's the only language dense enough to convey any of the information that's coming at us. Which is also why if you want to develop a relationship with the self, Jung says it's sort of indistinguishable from God. And so you don't have to be convinced existence or non-existence of God is not, you know, what, what evidence could we get? You know, you can always apply skepticism to any evidence. And you could always say that lack of evidence doesn't imply, right? Evidence or absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. So that's not resolvable. But the point is that you do definitely have this sort of center within your psychic functioning. And it transmits in symbolism and feeling and meaning and organization. But that is also the language that it is most effectively spoken to. If you want to develop a relationship to this thing, you need to learn to speak in symbol. You need to learn to speak in ritual. You need to learn to speak in myth. And that's why every human group everywhere for all of history and prehistory, I mean, I'm about to say something really definite, but that, that would be the idea within this system would be that those things develop because it facilitates this kind of communication and it enacts this kind of communication and puts you into an appropriate relationship, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. I differ, I think, from lots of Jungians and lots of cognitive scientists because I think that you should leave everything on the table. So like the hellish chaos space that you describe, right? The unanswerable woe and meaningless and mechanism and the, the brutal, meaningless struggle of Darwinian organisms and gene wars and all of that. People want to throw that away. And they want to throw away nihilism and they want to throw away sadness. And I actually think you keep it all because those things are useful. So like, it's just, it's just the question, and this is my, this is my wizard talk coming through, but the question is just how you befriend them, how you make of them an ally. So, you know, consider for instance, this slider, right? Sometimes we feel like if, if you're predisposed to believe that there's such a thing as free will, whatever the hell that means, right? 
you know, there's free will and there's determinism. So free will is like, yeah, I really get to decide what I'm doing in the world. And determinism is no, I actually don't, even if there's an illusion that I do. And this rages back and forth in psychology and cognitive science and philosophy, and it's not really answerable. How would we answer it? But there is a difference in terms of how our narrative and our current emotional state and so on convey our feeling of free will, right? Our sense of agency. And some of that is reflected in how effective we are, right? How much fluency we have and things like that, flow states, this sort of stuff. But some of it is just sort of the mindset that we work ourselves into, a little narrative. And we're used to thinking, good, like free will agency, good, mechanistic determinism, bad, but that's not true. They can each be useful and it depends on the circumstances. So if you're experiencing a whole set of psychological issues, okay, and you know, you're experiencing serious depression, you know, what is the first thing you should do? And I would recommend this to all of my clients. The first thing you should do is go get a thyroid test because if your thyroid function is disrupted, you can have all kinds of mood things. And if people get their thyroid test and it turns out that they're, you know, they're deficient in whatever, and then they start taking thyroid medication and they feel better, well, they just got a mechanistic explanation. That's a, that's a deterministic explanation. Sometimes a deterministic explanation is exactly what you want because it removes responsibility. If you find out that your grandma is yelling at you, but she doesn't really hate you, she just has a brain tumor, it's tragic, but also it's relieving because she doesn't mean it, right? Likewise, sometimes we have high agency and that's great. I feel really in charge of my life, but sometimes what that provokes is a crushing sense of responsibility and failure and guilt. Oh no, I have free will. Why can't I get my laundry done, right? Why can't I you know, get on top of my shit. Why can't I sort out my relationships? Free will and agency can create this really crushing sense. And so sometimes the answer is to say, to run yourself through the narrative that it's like, well, how could I have done things differently? And the facts are exactly the same, but you're running a different kind of philosophical argument. You're dragging yourself towards this deterministic end to give yourself a bit of a break before you then move back into agency and move forward. So you see how the slider, it's not that one or the other is intrinsically always you want to set the setting here and that's that it's that you have a set of sliders and you want to be able to move them around contextually to be able to shape shift yourself into the most effective configuration for a situation it's like evolution there's no apex predator if you throw a shark into the desert it does not do well if you throw a tiger into the ocean ditto <laughs> right yeah and yeah. its adaptation is sort of structural anyway sorry okay yeah. okay yeah beautiful okay so so what's interesting is in the decision then to go get the thyroid checked, there Ooh. is um, already inherent, obviously, in that decision that health would be valuable, right? That I want to change sure. to become something else. And then it's sort of about, well, what tools are available for us? How can we sort of and utilize them effectively? How can we make effective choices? And it's so complex, of course, because at one level, we can understand aspects of ourselves as having this machine-like function, or at least we have these sort of ready-made kind of solutions. And then there are other types of issues that are much more nebulous. And we find sure. ourselves as agents seeking to sort of chart our path through all of these waters towards something, mm -hmm. let's just say, in the direction of growth or just, 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 to, just to put a pin in that. Sure. So then we can still take the frame of what is it we ought move toward, right? There's still the question of ought, what ought we do and our sort of always already present involvement in action, 
even in action mm-hmm. as an action because sure. the world is changing and it's having effects. And so the, one of the challenges of this moment is that we are, as a collective, unsure about, I think, the future fundamentally. And there are people who have got ideas, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm so glad for that. For the record, I actually think it's a good thing, but people have bemoaned the, obviously, right? I mean, look, this is not what anybody thought they were going to be doing with their summer. Sure. That's fair to say, right? And, mm-hmm. But that's, in my opinion, that's good. Because again, on the note of certainty, people have a tendency to project ahead a, a model and a prediction about the way that the world is going to be in the, and it works. And it almost never matches that model. But nevertheless, they steer according to it. We get a, a normalcy bias at work. So like whatever the current circumstances are, we assume that's going to be the way that it is. And people begin to think that, you know, contingent structures in the status quo are necessary structures of reality. But all of a sudden, when the brakes get hit hard and people realize, holy crap, things are not what I thought that they were. Things are not rolling out according to regular summer fun. And holy shit, like a collective, oh, am I allowed to swear? I didn't even ask. I'm sorry. That's rude. Please. Okay, you can bleep me if you want. You can put a sound of gosling or let it roll. You know, having that disrupted is is terrifying and it's anxiety provoking for people, right? We don't know. We don't know what we're going to do. We don't know what our plans are. We're disappointed. All of those things. But at the same time, what it does is it shakes up this tightly bound sense of where things are going. And in that sense, right, it suddenly opens up the possibility. I don't think it's coincidental that the social uprisings that are happening are happening in the wake of such a large disruption. A disruption that large does all the things that people politically point out, right? It has showed the ineptness of certain governments and the sort of crass two-facedness and self-interest of some parties. And I'm not going to get too political. Maybe I already mm-hmm. did. You know, and on top of that, it shows a certain kind of precarity. It's like, oh, wow, like things could, things fall apart. But also it's like, wait, if things do not have to be the way that they were yesterday, if indeed they are already not that, what can they be? Yes. And once people start to get over their initial anxiety and then they're, you know, stir crazy and, and bored, right? Mm-hmm. I can think of worse things for stir crazy boredom to be poured into than writing injustice. And so I think that in some ways it's, it's kind of a wake up call to have a global event of this scale. And although it's freaked everybody out and everybody has lingered on the sort of negative qualities, emotionally speaking of it, mm-hmm. I think that actually the net is probably positive in the same way that a bad trip can be good for you. Yes. Well, I, we are, sorry, I'm straying off, off script. No, 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 I... no. Well, there what mm. script. So the, the, well, the issue is of course, is that the script has been broken and that's a good thing. Right. Yet we are in the process of build, making the script and a, a bunch of things are, a bunch of things are coming to me. So one is that it's kind of like, if we find ourselves in an addiction, mm-hmm. certain ways of thinking patterns of behavior, it's often the case that reaching a certain kind of rock bottom is very, very useful in an, enabling this reorientation, right? There's been a, a sort of breaking apart and an opportunity for a, a full enough dissolution so as to reorient and to reintegrate in a way that's more aligned with something that's genuinely healthy. But an issue is that, well, what if that moment of hitting the rock bottom actually wasn't quite sufficient enough and we've clasped back on and maybe um, re-embed part of the issue 
um, or take ourselves to have finally solved it, but actually haven't, but we've become only more ardent in our commitment to that new pattern of action. There's, there's, there's an importance in reaching a ground that is open enough to be appropriately seeded. And so sure, I, sure. If, you, if you allow me, Anderson, I want to try and put a, quite a few more pieces together. There's, I sense this potential and I, there's a question that's like three or four pieces away from me that wants to come out. And, and I, I really sense you have, you have something to deepen of it. So when we undergo these processes of development, these, these juncture points in life where we have the opportunity to, to reorient that's helpful, but we want to, it's like, but, but when we do that, we also need the context itself to be enabling of continued growthful, continued of, of that new behavior. So, you know, if someone comes to an understanding that they really have to kick this particular habit, but then re-enters the same social group, there might be something that draws them back. So the context itself has to be enabling in some sense, as a reciprocal relationship there between sort of um, agent and a reader in John's language, self and context, self and world, self and other. And in this moment, it seems the integration we seek, we're getting a lot of opportunity for differentiation, although it's clear in many parts of society to me, there's been actually that, that differentiation. It's kind of like people are so des they're so terrified actually of the ground groundlessness beneath that there's already a, too hard an attachment to various kind of identity structures, which are not actually capable of coming into right relationship with reality. So if we take the human organism as a, as a body, there's parts of that thing, that house is still divided. Hey, the house is still, is still very much divided. So there's, there's a part of an issue with the fullness, let's say of the, or appropriateness of the dissolution or fullness of it. But then if we look at this, this reintegration, there's this necessity of doing that together of relating together and we are absent seems to me so many of the structures that would be really helpful in this so we talk about an ecology of practices that's important and that might be to help bring the different parts of us our psyche uh, into a certain kind of alignment to be afforded the developmental opportunity to become more of a sort of a whole and together and integrous human being but at the same time this question grips me it's like well what if I actually cannot become who I am without, for example, um, the place to be in? So, you know, how can, how can someone um, become a, a, a priest or a saint without a church or a temple? You know, how can we become sort of loving members of community without genuine community? And the other piece to kind of bring in is that I'm very interested in this question of what is it? how can we consider what an emergence of a kind of no novel archetypal patterns might be novel archetypal mm -hmm. forms. And, and my sense is that an area of real possibility is to consider the kind of emergence possible. If a certain group of people are able to be together in relationship and involve themselves in certain kinds of differentiating and integrating processes in touch with the world what kind of arrangements, uh, what kind of appropriate relation of patterns is then possible in the context, which perhaps can enable not only the becoming of self as we might understand it from a Jungian framework, but is there something ready and waiting in us 
beyond that. I, I'm not saying that mm. I'm not saying we're right here yet. There's still other pieces to presence, but as a sort of broad direction of where I would love to turn this inquiry eventually, it's like, how can we come together to realize that, which is an arc, you know, it is something of sustenance and fructifying possibility that can have us become who we are and live well and, and prosper throughout the coming time. Yeah. Okay. So that was a lot of material on the table, but I think I can leave it. Yeah. So, so, I mean, you know, one thing is you mentioned this, you know, the, the kind of trying to get ourselves into a, a social relatedness. And I would say that certainly one of the central points in my own work is about attempting to explore the implications and mechanics of all the stuff that I've talked about relative to transjectivity. So the fact that psychic events are simultaneously pointing inwards and outwards. Mm-hmm. So that, that means some important things, right? And so among other things, it means that our usual Cartesian idea of our mind as a closed off little thing is basically horseshit. And it's just wrong in a lot of ways because there's a sense in which our imitative patterns and relationships, all of our culture and language and stuff, tie us together into kind of distributed cognition. And that's just natural to humans. It's what we do, right? Literacy is acquired, but speech Speech is just like we just pick up languages because we are talkers. We're not the only talkers. There are other animals that communicate, but, but nobody else, maybe whales once we correct the code, but I doubt it. I think we're the only ones on this particular ball that are talking at this level, machine elves on DMT notwithstanding. So we're the only ones who are employing this particular kind of networking. So like, is there something that's built into us? Yeah, our capacity for distributed cognition. But in a sense, right, that's, it's really, if you look at the, the perspective this way, that's an outgrowth of what we already are. So we're used to thinking of ourselves as these single individuals, and then we network the individuals together. But really, we're not individual. We're very individual, right? There, there is a, a unifying principle in the same way as there's a unifying principle in the solar system. But that doesn't mean that everything in the solar system is one fused solid mass. There are dynamics and orbits, and, right? There's a lot going on right? Comet shooting through and stuff. Nevertheless, the sun is in the center. That's the power source and it's the gravity that's binding the system together into a sensible whole. And everything is, is going through its cosmic, you know, a ballet around that. But in turn, right, the way that we're relating to each other, you know, is also, it's built in. Our brains do not distinguish closely between internal events and external events. And so we're already networked together. So that's the capacity. It's, it's that capacity. And it's the adaptivity, right? It's the adaptiveness that comes with that. So even something like when we're talking about simultaneously differentiating and integrating, right? So, you know, you differentiate, you pull things apart, you integrate, you knit them together. And if you simultaneously integrate and differentiate, you complexify. Literally, that's what happens when you're talking about organs. You know, you get a single cell, right? Well, two, I guess, sperm and egg. And then the single cell becomes a little blastocyte. And when that starts to stem cell itself into separate organs, it differentiates, it organizes, right? They take on special functions. They're simultaneously separating it out, becoming different, but also maintaining dense connections. We've done that. That's civilization. I mean, specialist roles. The fact that we do not all do the same tasks in the village every day, right, is an indication already that we've done that. Now, I don't think that complexity is an inherent goal. So complexity is, again, a fittedness condition. Something could be too complex. 
Something can be too complex. Civilizations can be too complex. Uh, Homer Dixon has a good analysis of this, Thomas Homer Dixon, where he basically says, you know, once, once a civilization gets to a point where of certain complexity, too much of its energy budget gets eaten up just in maintaining those structures and then it collapses in on itself, right? And it's possible that we're quite close to steering in that direction, that we need to be less complex. But at the same time, and you sort of alluded to this, we're kind of an unmapped territory. <laughs> and I mean, in a very important, realistic way. And in a way that I think, barring the extinction of our species, there are certain aspects of where we've gotten to now that aren't about to ratchet down. So Jung talks about this a bit in his book, Ion. He talks, I mean, it's a very unusual, fascinating, weird, frightening, delicious book. It's, it's a great book. It's very difficult, but it's good. He talks about a lot about astrology. And so he's using sort of metaphors of the procession of the, the astrological types of these like 2000 year long or 2500 year long cycles. And so, you know, he talks about how the age of Pisces, the two fish, is the Christian era. And it's dominated by the fish myths of the Christian era. And then theoretically, we're now phasing into the age of Aquarius, <clears throat> Q musical. And his point is that the transition into the age of Aquarius is going to be marked by this change in collective and personal unconscious, that it's going to be marked by new structures of civilization on the scale and complexity and degree of integrated meaning as the church had in Europe in its heyday, right? Well, we're talking about something that is binding together the efforts and experience of vast swaths of people and what they think is meaningful. And I sometimes say it's like, there are people who kind of think that your average peasant in the Middle Ages thought Christianity was bunkum. But there are also towns in France where three generations of people would work to build a cathedral. That's what they did. The last shared cultural project that we've had that's even remotely like that is maybe the moon landing, right? Which, you know, say what you will about solving the problems on Earth as opposed to squandering money on rocket toys. The moon landing, in my opinion, if you don't just think it's us trashing up our next door neighbor's lawn, by leaving garbage and probes all over it, is this resounding, astounding achievement of the human spirit and about our, our capacities. We don't really have anything going like that right now. Like, what's our goal? Ours? So we don't have a cathedral. And Jung basically said, as we move into the age of Aquarius, and he's using this all metaphorically, I think, we would see the emergence of a, a new social structure that would sort of, that would take these new psychic factors and new scientific facts into consideration. And then he sort of drops and he's like, and we should see that about 600 years down the road. And when I read that, and my numbers might not be exact, I should pick up the quote, but when I read that the first time, it smacked me because of course, Obviously, I'm thinking it's going to happen like now, because I'm here now. <laughs> like, where, where's the new civilization? And he's like, and that should happen like 600 years down the road. And it's like, right. Mm. That properly situates us in what is a process. Now, mm. I don't think that it's inevitable that, that, I don't think it's inevitable necessarily that like the new and perfect society will emerge. You know, the, the mirage of utopianism was what caused the worst most horrific excesses of the pseudo-religious ideologies of the 20th century. Because if you're Stalin and you, you're with, if, if heaven is within your grasp, any sacrifice of human life is, 
is justified to obtain paradise, right? That's how things get monstrous quickly. So I'm wary of utopian thinking. I think there are going to be flaws in whatever the new configuration of being is too. These flaws mm. are interesting. Mm. And my suspicion, to be perfectly honest, is like we're in for a rocky stretch. Like if we think we're going to dodge what's coming, and I don't like to, I don't want to freak people out too much because sometimes I get on this tear and then I look and my students all have a bleak middle distance staring off into whatever. But like, there are some things coming. We're about to get some comeuppance and learn a few things about thermodynamics. We're going to learn a few things about, you know, monkeying around with nature for short-term goals. Like we're about to learn some hard lessons. And when I say learn hard lessons, I mean, a lot of people are going to die. Like it's possibly going to be quite bad. Yeah. Or ability to handle consciously collective action problems. I don't think maybe we're going to turn the boat around on the whole climate change issue before effects start really piling up. And that scares me deeply. It, it, you know, sometimes really freaks me out. But when I think about it, it's like, okay, but are, is it going to wipe us out? (laughs) I mean, right. Mm -hmm. That's a way to think about it because Mm -hmm. the scale on which Jung is talking when he's talking an eye on is about, we're talking about the movements of cultures and civilizations. It's not something we're going to do right now. At least maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's an ongoing experiment. And some of the aspects of that experiment, even if our cultural complexity drops, will remain. So for instance, I think, I think that even if, our, even if we got hit with an enormous disaster, you know, 80% of the population of the planet dies off, something horrific and unimaginable. Mm-hmm. There are certain things that we've achieved in the last while that aren't going anywhere. Like the radio. Once you know how to build a radio, radios aren't hard to build. If local civilization falls apart, I can build a radio with a few pieces of spare metal and some lemons. That means that radio communications, in my opinion, unless we, you know, if we drop down to total like caveman cannibalistic savagery or something, then that's a different story. But like, even if these sort of large scale, tightly specialized, you know, right, if we enter something that's really scary prospect for a lot of people there are certain things that just aren't going away and so i suspect that probably we're going to see a certain amount of return to the natural bounds and balance of what the planet can handle in terms of our activities but also we're going to go back to that level of integration having carried with us the fruits of having made this excursion and this weird experiment into our current thing Mm. uh, if that if that makes sense so And so what we're going to get, I don't think is written. I don't think it's written. I don't think it's pre-programmed. I think it's a grand experiment because that's what life is, Mm. you know, evolutionarily speaking. And, you know, what's the, what's the guiding thing? I don't know, flourishing, but that can mean a lot of different things like it can in our own lives. You know, sometimes flourishing is, you know, building up all of our resources and sometimes it's shedding them. Mm. And sometimes it's activity and sometimes it's repose and there isn't a single answer. It's situational. Mm. And similarly, our civilization is, I think, about to start making the reconfiguration. And, and who knows, you know, we're an adaptable species. We might pivot really fast, you know, get fusion, you know, nanotech scale technology and AI that doesn't decide to eat us. And then institute a wisdom program, you know, put uh, psychedelics in the drinking water and we're good. Who knows? It's not, it's not outside the realm of possibility. And probably 
some combination of these quite hopeful things and the relatively dark things that people don't want to confront is what's really going to happen. Have you ever read um, Herman Hesse's The Glass Bead Game? Yes. Yeah. I haven't finished it, but I have been reading, yeah. Yeah. So that's one of my favorite novels. And one of the things I really like about it again is it has this three steps back view of historical progress. It's like, what do they call our era? The age of Fouletan? Like, mm. like yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, distraction and frippery, right? Hilarious. Yeah. yeah. The age of Twitter might have been an app. It's a, it was a nonstop, like, hairs on the back of your neck experience, reading, hairs mm. writing that back before, before World War II or around, it was earlier 20th century, right? And he's sort of basically commenting on our civilization right now. It's a truly remarkable thing. And I truly really encourage, you know, everyone to check this book out because it's, uh, and for those people following along with this project, the glass bead game is, is, is going to be very close to its heart, but please Anderson. Mm-hmm. So just, it's got this long, it's got this long view. I mean, it's the future and it's the deep future, but it's a deep future that isn't Star Trek and it isn't unrecognizably sort of post-singularity or something. It's a future where things are a bit less mechanized, and yet there are machines and technology. Governments and stuff still exist, but there's been a return to a certain version of culture and science where, like, the sciences and academics and culture and sort of almost a church thing have blended together into a kind of you know, almost Vatican-esque state uh, called Castalia up in Switzerland. And like, obviously this speaks to my heart because all I want to do is be a, you know, a, a futuristic techno monk or something. I don't want to be a monk, but as, as already discussed, but if I could be a techno wizard, I'm on board. Yeah. So it has a vision of things that struck me as very human and yet showing like real changes in the cultural landscape. And that's if you think about it, often what science fiction, even when it sort of gets things right, misses. You know, we transport into the 37th century with robots and ray guns and miniskirts. It's like, really, mm-hmm. miniskirts? Is that mm-hmm. that's still a thing? And Hesse instead captures something about the sort of the humanistic speculative future, yeah. right? So, and actually, okay, so one more thing that I'll say and then I'll stop, but the other thing that Hess gets, and I think this is why it does send chills up your spine when you read it. I mean, he's, he's a very depth psychologically oriented, very archetypal, right? Big fan of Jung, went through analysis, right? And he wrote that book as a response after people didn't understand Steppenwolf. Steppenwolf was meant to be this kind of archetypal confrontation of the novel. Again, good book, but people just misread it because they weren't ready quite to have that encounter. It was sort of a game before its time. And he writes the glass bead game as a response to try to like get this idea through to people. And yet it's remarkably prescient, right? It has that predictive capacity. And that's because the flip side of this, we're in an open experiment and what, what life is doing and culture is doing and the species is doing is experimenting with the space to figure out where it can get itself to, right? What can we do, right? And how can we niche ourselves and whatever? The flip side of that is again, we have these deep intrinsic patterns of what it means to be us. And because those patterns don't go away and to some extent may be grounded in sort of the rules, the mathematical rules that constitute reality in some ways, because those fundamentals are there, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. You get that quality where it's like, you know, it's not the same thing, you know, but, and yet 
things are sort of recognizable. So you read big history like, you know, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire or Toynbee mm -hmm. or something. And they have this idea of the cyclical nature of history. Mm -hmm. And when you start to read that stuff, structuralist history is out of fashion. And yet, of course, for the past few years, call it five, everybody has been nervously tenting their fingers and looking back to the mass psychology and rise of fascism in the 30s and going, um, maybe we should be paying attention to this. Why? Because it rhymes. Now, I mean, the current crop of, the current crop of autocrats are a bunch of tin pot cosplayers, if ever there were any. But nevertheless, you know, the, they would enact as much malevolence, I'm sure, as they were capable of, given the chance. Yeah. Oh, anyway. yeah. No, I, I hear you. That's a, such a beautiful answer. So what strikes me is that the, you, you mentioned, you know, if we have this, this event, say 80% of people don't make it, but we can uh, reconstruct radio that affords us a lot of, a lot of potentiality. There's something about the medium of that communication, this capacity to network and thereby communicate things has been established already. We have that knowledge structure. And so we can do a lot with that medium of communication. And of course, what we're experiencing now is the continued emergence, the rapid emergence of novel mediums of communication. And as yet, we, I think, are still adapting to, well, of course, we are still adapting as to how to like adaptively used we're currently destroying ourselves with these mediums of communication in terms of social media and what have you but yeah but such a beautiful thing we can talk to each other and what would it be like to and of course this is something i'm very interested in to have uh six eight ten twenty fifty one hundred more people network together in conversation you know we don't have to limit it to language, actually. We can use all different forms of representation making. This is, the, this is the aim. This is the vision. And if we take this glass bead game example, we have a fusion of a kind of maths and music, and, but nevertheless, a commitment to playing the game in such a way as to enable something to be birthed from that collective participation. Right, that there's there's something beyond the kind of well, to Jungian frame, the egoic kind of identification with whatever's around the particular spotlight or the the lamppost of the, of the ego, but that we can subtly avail ourselves to the appropriate ingression with and relationship to and orbits of these yeah. these more nebulous, more subtle features of ourselves. And how, what's the kind of process? What's the protocol for optimal collaboration in new mediums of communication it's in that landscape where i am most excited yeah that's yeah. a that kind of i think crystallizes a very real opportunity that's an adjacent possible to us right now and although you know and, and i and i would like obviously i mean i would love to talk to you many more times but i so much of what you're saying is just firing off triggers in me of, of this person I know and this person I know who share a certain resonance would here be able to make a point and have something to add here that I can articulate but coming from them it would be that much crisper that much more immediate more the, the tone the rhythm it's like how can we show up bearing and with the what is ours to give to contribute to to this evolving harmony and the kind of ideas the insight the understanding what can be afforded through this is such a beautiful thing yeah so i mean to to call back a little bit you know you, you made mention a while ago to this 
you know, the concern that people have when they're dealing with self-development, but also when they're dealing with sort of in interpersonal self-development, right? Which yes. is almost paradoxical, except it isn't because we're connected to other people deeply. And that's integral to self-development and self-development is integral to relation and, right? You know, and, and you expressed with no small concern, and I think some justification that's like, well, what if, what if, you know, we dissolve this thing down and we break it down and we build something back up, but there's something left over of the old thing. There's kind of an impurity that, that remains. And it's like, yeah, that's an understandable concern, but also that's the work. The, mm. the, the problem often is that we have this mindset of sort of end stage perfectionism. And now we have achieved the perfect jewel, right? But mm. that's not how it works. It's, mm. it's, it's refinement. Very often, in fact, the solutions that we craft in our being at mm. one phase of our life become the obstacles of another phase. Mm. That's so common that it's, it's, mm. the, it's the bread and butter of a therapeutic practice in a way. Right? You figure out solutions to problems and then later you have to dismantle them, except they don't want to be dismantled. And maybe you don't want to dismantle them, but they're the things causing you the problem. It's like fixation and an insight problem. You, know? you figured out how to connect the dots as a kid and now you can't solve the nine dot. You know, so, so, and, and that's a feature partly, I think, of, of what you're talking about. You know, John Vervecki, mm -hmm. his close friend and colleague and collaborator of, of mine, you know, when he talks about cognitive science as a discipline. He talks about it as being an interdisciplinary work, which is existing at the intersection of, of a bunch of cognate disciplines, philosophy and psychology and mathematics and anthropology and computer science and artificial intelligence. And, you know, it draws all these things in and it attempts to find a formulating language that bridges those things. And he talks about sort of some visions of cognitive science, right? And the weak version is generic nominalism, the cognitive sciences, right? So that just means all of those things are under an umbrella, but they have nothing to add to each other when talking about understanding the mind. And then he talks about the middle ground and the middle ground is, oh bugger, am I gonna remember what this is called? I don't remember the middle ground, we'll come back to that. But it doesn't matter because it, it doesn't stick around. It either decays into generic nominalism or if it's lucky, it bumps up a notch and it becomes synoptic integration. So what's synoptic integration? Well, you can imagine, a conference that's an interfaith dialogue. You know, you get some Buddhists and you get some Christians and you have them start talking like, so what are you talking about? And maybe they'll just, you know, talk over the lunch bar, but never discuss deep realities, in which case they're at this end and it's, you know, never the twain shall meet. Or maybe they have some interesting exchange and insights, but it doesn't kind of connect and they walk away. And But maybe what happens is that they connect so deeply that they begin to form an analogical metaphorical language that lets them bridge insights back and forth. And they start to turn into something new. Synoptic integration is the growth of this syncretic synthetic thing that emerges that possesses strengths and abilities from the two things that composed it and yet transcends them in important respects. That's a really interesting way of thinking about bringing together disparate fields. And cognitive science is one of the most interdisciplinary things out there. That's, what, that's one of the reasons I love it, because you can talk about anything. And every discipline thinks it's the master discipline, but cognitive science is the master discipline, unless the master discipline is alchemy. But also, as I argued recently, cognitive science is alchemy. Yes. So, but here's the thing. That's all very abstract, and it's hard to grasp. So here's something that's easier to grasp that I often use. The trick 
to getting this communication and symbolic exchange and all this cultural material and finding our way forward is a good house party. And I mean that in a non-glib way. Think about what it takes to throw a good house party. You can throw a house party and it can decay into generic nominalism. Your one group of friends are over there dominating the kitchen. They've got the, right? The other, there's another, there's another group out here about the stereo and they're not interacting with each other. And the point of a good house party, of course, is to bring together often to curate some disparate social streams of your friends, right? Or you might get a few meaningful jokes and maybe two of your friends go home with each other and you didn't expect that. And you get some good conversations or whatever, but then the groups fall back and you interact with them. But then there's the house party where you succeed in setting the groundwork for a new kind of group of friends. New friends start to talk excitedly in a way, that we, in a way where they realize what the mutual contributions that they have. Those are the kinds of house parties where you walk out and you say, that was one for the ages. Because everybody, you can't let the energy go. Everybody stays up till 6 a.m. And the last two people, you know, you get like, I don't know, you know, a lawyer and a monk nursing a bottle of bourbon at the end of the night while everybody else sleeps on the floor. And that's how you know, right? Everybody walks out the next morning. There is the magic glow and you all know something has been created. There's been this. And so many things that occur in the fringe in the social experimental realm seek to create those conditions. I mean, you know, that's Burning Man in a nutshell. Mm. Burning Man and the temporary autonomous zone in Hacking Bay are all this attempts to create the conditions whereby we remove ourselves from the conventions of, of reality and social consensus long enough that we can have one of these shared collective interchanges, right? Mm. Now, if you ask me, the exoticism of being out in the desert and not having enough water and then the commercial interests and whatever, like it, it got decayed. Think about things that happen. I've never been to Burning Man, I should add. I keep getting invited, but I write a novel over Labor Day weekend every year. And so I can never go. I guess they don't have it this year or mm. I haven't looked. Hmm. Think about the, the original idea before it was 30,000 people out on the playa. And the original idea is like a highly ritual action. It's a space and a time that are apart from space and time. It's a desert, which is a traditional space that you go into to confront the deeper and bleaker realities. It's not conventionally life-sustaining. It's hard to deal with. It's empty. For the West, particularly, the god of the book is the god of the desert. And the three great monotheistic religions are religions of the book, desert religions. If you've ever been in the deep desert, I imagine you have, or because you really, there's a giant desert right in the middle of your continent. <laughs> you should get in there.